Southeastern Bow Hunter Podcast. Hey guys, this is JD with Southeastern Bow Hunter Podcast. Just want to let you know I can save you a little bit of money if you go onto nosedownsense.com and type in the promo code SEBH15, Southeastern Bow Hunter 15, SEBH15. That'll get you 15% off on all the products they have across the whole site. Now go make sure you check them out. Amazing products, great cover sense, and great application sense for those big old scripts you're trying to work on. Also, after you get that game, you can go ahead and season it up with some of their seasonings and dry rubs they have. Go give them a check. Hey guys, it's JD with Southeastern Bowhunter Podcast. You ever get bored like I do in the middle of the night watching YouTube, trying to figure out which broadhead flies the best, which one penetrates the best? different arrows, different bows, different bow speeds, all that kind of stuff, go check out Chest Stump Outdoors. Not only do they have some good hunting footage, he also does amazing broadhead reviews and arrow reviews and bow reviews and stuff like that. He goes to all the different trade shows and tests out all the bows right there on camera. He also does the Mountain Archery Fest. So give him a check. That's again, Chest Thumper Outdoors. Go give him a good listen. Go watch his videos. Some amazing content. What's going on, y'all? Welcome to episode 60 of Southeastern Bowhunter Podcast. Um, This episode, I am recording this intro on the 31st, and this episode will drop on the 2nd. So, you know, if you guys are listening to this, I hope you had a great... uh, you know, a great, uh, happy new year and new year's Eve. Um, hope you guys are all safe, made it home, not too hungover. Hopefully I won't be as after, you know, recording this, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's going to be a good time. So wanted to drop this, um, on the first, but I figured everyone's going to be busy. And so this is on the second and, you know, I just want to say thank you to everybody that's been listening. Uh, 2023 was a huge growth year for us and I can't wait to see what 2024 brings. Um, this episode, the first episode for 2024 is going to be with Mr. Lindsey Thomas. He is with the National Deer Association and, you know, he has taught me a lot just in this one episode about deer on things that I never knew. Um, so going to be changing a lot up for the, for next season and probably my last sit. I already did some changing over the weekend, um, and it's been pretty fruitful. So before we get started, um, gotta, you know, name off the partners, give them a little shout out. Uh, VPA, man, uh, broadheads, they have over 70 different broadheads you can choose from. They're all fixed blades ranging from single bevel all the way to three, three blade, um, that go up to 300 grains. So if you want to run that heavy, heavy arrow setup with high FOC, they're the place to go to. Um, I honestly have been a huge fan of VPA since I heard about them like a year ago. And, you know, we're just blessed to be able to work with them. Ryan and the boys are awesome. So thank you guys for coming on board, being a part of this. And, uh, you know, if you want to go get a new broadhead set um, or try some stuff out, they do have a test sample pack. You can go to their website. Uh, I think it's VPA.com or, or no, it's VantagePointArchery.com. 
Go over there, check it out, see what you like. And if you pick something up, use our promo code SEBH10, and it'll save you 10% on anything site-wide. Uh, next up is going to be Osseo Gear. You know, Joe has had a very successful season. Um, we are also very blessed to be working with them. And uh, it's a really cool camo pattern. I mean, it's different than a lot of the stuff that you've seen on the market, you know, before. So if you're interested, go to OsseoGear.com. Check out, you know, the early season, late season, everything that they have. And at checkout, use the promo code SBH10, and it saves you 10% site-wide. Uh, next up is going to be Summit Tree Stands. You know, I am working on kind of deciding I'm probably going to end up going with the open shot. It's basically a hang-on climber. Um, it's a climbing tree stand, but it's fully open. So you sit there, and it's two different platforms, uh, one for you to sit, one for you to stand, but it's the same exact design as what a, what a hang-on tree stand is, except you climb with it. So I've been a big fan of that. Um, really looking forward to using that next year. And I know there's a lot of cool things coming from Summit um, at ATA. Can't really say too much, but it is going to be awesome. So keep an eye out for that. And if you're in the, you know, the market for a new tree stand or some accessories, uh, they have hang-ons with sticks, they have climbers, they have a bunch of different things for all their products um, that I think you guys would really like. So if you go to their website, summitstands.com, and find something you like at checkout, use the promo code SEBH15, and that will save you 15% on everything on their website. Um, last but not least is going to be Scout Tech. And, you know, Ryan has become one of my really good friends, dude. They, they're such a good company. Um, their cameras work flawlessly. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm ready to see what happens with them. I know they've got some stuff in the works, and I can't wait to talk about it with you guys. Um, but go check out Scout Tech. And, you know, reach out to me or reach out to Ryan if you're interested in some stuff, especially if you reach out to me, I can get you in contact with Ryan pretty easily um, or reach out to JD. You know, we, we both talk with Ryan weekly. So, yeah, man, you know, all these companies we work with and the guests we've had, I can't thank you guys enough. Um, seriously, it, it has been a huge blessing for us. And y'all are just <laughs> y'all are awesome. Uh, we got a lot of good guests lined up for this year so far, and I can't wait to see who else we can get on and where the growth comes from. So, you know what? Enough blabbering. Uh, let's get into it with Mr. Lindsey Thomas from the National Deer Association. Grab a pen, grab a notepad, and let's learn something, guys. All right, guys, we got Mr. Lindsey Thomas from the National Deer Association. Um, if you don't know the name, then... I'm not going to say you don't know a lot about deer, but this man knows quite a bit about deer. So he, uh, I think you, you worked with, uh, or worked at UGA, right? In the, the deer. I no, guess. I did. I did not. Now I went to school at UGA for okay, journalism, but no, I, I did not study, um, deer or biology at UGA. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, then why don't we, you know, why don't we do like a quick little intro to you? What, you, what got you into this? What got you into hunting? how you got to where you're at now. Um, you know, cause I've listened to you on a few podcasts. Um, my buddy, Mike's, you were just on theirs a few weeks ago. And I mean, it's like I told you before we started recording, man, I've learned so much about deer just from listening to you. So if you tell the listeners, you know, how everything started and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I'm the chief communications officer for the national deer association. Um, and you know, I grew up hunting. My dad raised me, my brother, and my sister, deer hunting, fishing, you know, enjoying the outdoors, turkey hunting, all of it. Um, so I've been a deer hunter my whole life, um, but also always been fascinated with uh, 
the biology of deer, their habitat, how to improve their habitat for them. And then also, I've always been a, a writer and communicator. So I uh, got my journalism degree at the University of Georgia and was fortunate uh, to get a job as an editor with Georgia Outdoor News Magazine and worked there for nine years. And then an opportunity came along to uh, manage the magazine for the Quality Deer Management Association. And that was really a good fit for me, considering, you know, my love for deer management and deer habitat management. So I took that job and basically it's the same. I'm still in the same organization 20 years later. Uh, we are now known as the National Deer Association um, since 2020 when we merged with the National Deer Alliance and basically just took, you know, everything that both groups did really well and put it all under one roof is what that means. So I've been, you know, in charge of communications for this same organization for 20 years, um, printed publications, the website, social media, uh, email, video, all the communications we put out, you know, my team handles that. So that's what I do. And I've been, you know, writing and reporting on deer for uh, a long time, you know, counting the GON years, you know, almost 30 years. And, um, you know, I've always followed the science and the research and studied that as a journalist and interviewed the folks who really know this stuff, the deer biologists and researchers and to write my, you know, get them to help me write my articles. And that's really how I've learned the, what I know, but also through practical application, you know, um, doing the habitat management, doing the herd management, hunting deer myself and applying what I was learning from the science side of things. So you know, it's just a lot of years of being privileged to get to know some of the leading experts and researchers in, in the deer world. And that's, that's, that's me. Gotcha. Yeah, man. Like I said, you know, I, I've learned a lot from you uh, specifically, you know, cause I don't know what it is about my podcast stuff that I listen to, but I feel like your name pops up a lot more than some of the other guys. Um, and you, I mean, you've helped me out a lot, you know, cause when I started hunting five years ago, I didn't know anything. I thought you grabbed a bag of corn, a bottle of tinks, sat 20 yards from it and you're going to kill the biggest deer in the woods. And I've learned very quickly. That is not the case. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a lot harder than people think. <laughs> so, um, and, and one of the things too, you know, cause I struggle a lot with, um, you know, like mop scrapes and, time of the year and some of these apps that we get to use these days. Um, I use Spartan Forge and I look at that a lot, you know, cause it's all GPS collar data. And there's some day or some times of the hunting season where it says it's like full range. Right. And I see every deer that's on the property. And then there's other days when it still says full range and I don't see anything. And so I, I kind of, I feel like I lean more towards like you were saying, you know, the science than just the old wives tales and stuff. Cause there's a million of them. Um, but I guess to dive into it, you know, one thing I've always really wondered is when people start talking about moon phases, um, does that really have any sort of impact? Cause I know people will say, Oh, full moon. I don't hunt a full moon in the morning. Cause you know, they're moving all night and then they go to bed. I mean, is it, is it really something that people should look at or is it kind of just something people pick up here? I'll say this, Eric, after looking at the science on this for a number of years and the studies that have evaluated movement, deer movement 
and compared that to the moon phases, mm-hmm. I don't hunt by moon phase. I don't pay any attention to it. Um, okay. There's just no evidence that there's a strong relationship there. Mm-hmm. Um, not in terms of movement and not in terms of rut timing. Okay. So really, there is really no um, major role that the moon plays in any aspect of deer hunting that that i pay attention to that's just there's just no support for that and it and it makes sense when you think about it i mean imagine if you know that theory that you're talking about it seems to make sense you know oh, okay well they can they can see really well on a full moon at night so they move a lot more yeah think about that in your you know in your terms what if you had a job where one week of the month you worked night shift all night and slept during the day but the other three weeks of the month, you completely flipped it and had to work day shift and sleep all night. And yeah, every no month, <laughs> every month you turned it around to get right. Yeah. It makes no sense. Deer are uh, crepuscular animals, and that means they move most around dawn and dusk. They do move at some at night, and they do move some in the broad daylight during the middle of the day. But mostly they move around dawn and dusk. They're not nocturnal animals like bats, and you know, and they're not you know, fully, you know, diurnal or daylight moving animals, um, like others that we know, um, that's what they're adapted to do. So it just doesn't make sense that once a month they would completely flip that script and, and move nocturnally and not move during the day and then go back to move again, that would mess with you, you know, your, your, um, your cycles and your rhythms. Yeah. If, if you change that up once a month like that. So it just doesn't make sense to me that they would do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. Cause I mean, there have been times, you know, when I was younger, probably 10 years ago where we do me and my buddies would do all nighters and then sleep all day and then do it again. And then a week later I'd be, you know, back to a normal schedule. And I'm like, dude, this just isn't, that's why I stopped <laughs> doing it. Cause it doesn't work. And, right. You know, the thing that, that I never really understood with that is, you know, deer can see at night, right? Yeah, they can see pretty well in low light conditions. Okay. Yes. So to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I mean, I guess I get it if people want to say, oh, full moon, they can see better. But dude, when it's a new moon, they can still see. So it, I don't think it would make any impact. Right. And, and then also you have to take into consideration that during a full moon, it can always be cloudy and overcast and sure. there's no light, you know, during the moon phase, during that phase. Um, so yeah, they can see well in the dark. They can see well, their, their vision really is designed for the medium ground, the low light conditions around dawn and dusk, when the light is in the low in the sky and in the horizon, that's how their eyes are built to, you know, see and process, uh, light and movement best, but they can see well during the night too. You know, I mean, they're, they're prey animals and they've got to be able to do whatever they need to do to escape predators, even during the, in, in the dark. Mm-hmm. But it, the, the fact is that the movement studies all across the country, many regions for years have shown that deer have two main peaks of movement every day, every mm-hmm. 24 hour period is going to be around dawn and dusk. They're going to move some at night. They're going to move some during the middle of the day, but those periods will be far lower than the peak of movement around dawn and dusk. Okay. So what would you say to a guy, I guess really like how I've kind of been dealing with the past week or so where even a spot I haven't hunted in, I don't know, two to three weeks. Um, and obviously, you know, we live in Georgia, so we, we can bait. I mean, I put food out, you know, I've got a camera over food. This is mainly where I'm getting most of my photos from. Um, but 
what would you say like to to my point with it where I'm seeing more movement at night I mean I'm still seeing some in the morning some in the evening I had a doe show up you know around five o'clock today I just refreshed the bait site this afternoon so it is kind of fresh I know my scent's in there all of that stuff but what do you think would make them do that because I know people say pressure but I haven't been there in two maybe three weeks so so you've got a you've got a camera on the bait site is that what you're saying I do yeah yeah okay well, it, there's so many factors that we have to always consider um, mm-hmm. that beyond just the few that we want to consider, like, well, pressure and, you know, are they nocturnal? There, there could be other things going on. What other foods are they eating right now? Um, so, you know, what, where is that bait site in relation to the good cover that they want to bed in? Um, you know, all these other factors that you have to take into consideration. Yeah. Um, so... You know, and, and this time of year, late in the season, I hear always hear every year a lot of people say, well, all the deer have gone nocturnal. Um, you know, I'm just not seeing anything. Yeah. And in most cases, that is due to pressure. It's not that they've gone nocturnal. It's just that in the places you're hunting, they've gone nocturnal. In the places yeah. you've, you've been pressuring, in the places you keep hunting, they've gone nocturnal. And there is some research that shows, particularly around bait sites, that... Uh, most of the activity around bait sites tends to be nocturnal, especially by mature bucks. Yeah. Um, that generally most of the daylight activity around a, a bait site is going to be does and yearling bucks um, for the most part, but still overall the greatest activity is going to be at night. I can't really explain that. And that's talking about even bait sites that aren't hunted. Um, hunted ones that works the same way, but you know, hunted or not, that's what studies have shown. Um, so I don't know whether deer just understand that that's, you know, not a natural food source and it's put there for, you know, a, a reason that maybe, you know, concerns them and, yeah. uh, and they're trying to be wise about it. I don't know, but we have to remember too, that again, there's other factors involved in, in what, what, uh, determines when a deer is moving where all I can tell you is that in many places where active hunting is happening where deer are wearing GPS tracking collars and being tracked, mm-hmm. um, hunters might perceive that the movements at night, but overall the movement rates of those deer wearing those collars is again, the same as it's always been mostly around dawn and dusk. Yeah. Now that can mean, you know, that certainly can be mo- mean moving on the dark side of dawn or the dark side of dusk. Um, but it also usually includes the day, you know, the light side of dawn and dusk as well. So, um, it's just right around those times. And most of the time when, whether it's a camera or whether it's you in a stand and, and, you know, thinking about what you've observed, if all, if you're not seeing deer move in daylight, there's some other factor you're not taking into consideration about that location, about food or about the rut or about, you know, whatever it is that, that is, that is explaining why at that place you're not seeing daylight movement. Deer, you know, they don't become nocturnal animals. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's just it, that the evidence continues to show, you know, you can, you can look at all the science and look at the factors that drive deer movement that, mm-hmm. that really have strong evidence that they mm-hmm. play a role. And you can take those con- factors into consideration as I often do in trying to decide where I'm going to hunt or tomorrow, tonight, whatever it is. Um, and yet still go even though you put all the factors in your favor, as many as you can still go and not see anything. 
you know, it is still, there's still some mystery to deer hunting and you're not always guaranteed to see deer. And, you know, it's kind of like the rut where you can be in the right place at the right time and have the best day you've ever had in the deer stand during the rut and be like, wow, I just can't believe the deer activity I saw. Mm -hmm. And then you could be a hundred yards off of the right place in the right time and feel like you, that nothing's happening, that the woods are dead and you had the worst day in the woods you've ever had. And yet the rut's still going on and it happened, you know, some other place. So that's the thing we've got to remember is there's a bigger picture than just what that camera sees and what our eyes see um, and other factors that we have to take into consideration. This is one of the important things about science is that it looks at what are called covariance, which means other factors that affect the question you're asking besides the factors you think are playing a role. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tell my buddies all the time, cause it seems like every year, man, it early season for us is just on fire. I mean, my target buck, I saw him the second sit, um, at this one spot, the second week of season. Now, some things happened. I didn't get him heartbreaking. He shed one side, which I want to ask you about because that, that sort of threw me off, but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> He, he shed one side and then it's like, he went totally nocturnal. I think it's because of, you know, heavy rutting and all of that. But what I've noticed just in just the past two years really is it's, it's very strong. And then gun season hits trickles off a little bit, middle of November. They just, if you're hunting a spot consistently, they disappear and it's, they're gone. And I noticed that last year, like you were saying, you know, I hunted this one spot, um, the one I was actually just telling you about with the feed and all of that, I hunted it every weekend and I'm over here thinking, you know, I'm doing good. I mean, the deer over here is the one I, where's my, that one I killed, um, second week of season. And I'm like, Oh dude, this is going to be, you know, a great spot. And it just, they were gone. I had all the right stuff that people say, you know, Oh, get the bleak can get the doe and estrus do, you know, the most expensive feeds, rattle, grunt, all of that. And I saw one deer in the entire month of November. So mm. yeah, it, it, man, you're right. There is a mystery to deer. Um, you know, I had does showing up all last week and I hunted two nights, um, last week before Christmas. Didn't see a thing. Well, okay. That's not entirely true. I did see deer Wednesday. I just didn't have a shot, but then I went back Friday in a different spot, same, same property, but a little bit further up where the deer were nothing and i had no idea why that happened so i don't know you're right i mean there's a huge mystery to these deer man they drive me crazy (laughs) i love them but they drive me crazy i'm right now trying to i'm hunting does right now and this afternoon i hunted as i told you and um i saw it was on in a uh on a food plot that's really productive right now and the deer are hitting it and i saw five different young bucks plus a button buck Mm. not a single dough anywhere so you know that's mm. how it works you, you know i need a dough for the freezer and i can't yeah. buy one so <laughs> that's that's what i've been running into and so let me ask you this and this is not i don't think i mean maybe it's science-based i don't know this is just an experience i had last year um so that spot that i hunted that i was just telling you about all last year every weekend same spot it was stupid but it's all i had um what was crazy to me is i was not getting any deer on camera really if i did it was at night um, never saw anything while I was there the day after season ended, they just start showing up in daylighting. And I mean, literally like I called it 
I told my wife, I'm like, I promise you these does are going to show up. And what do they do? I mean, do you think these deer are able to sort of figure out just based off pressure? And I'm not trying to make them sound like they're some super smart animal. I know they're smart, but like there, there has to be something that, that would cause them to do that. I mean, have you guys seen anything, I guess, similar to it or am I just crazy? Well, yeah, definitely. They are sensitive to pressure and definitely um, they will respond to that. And by changing their movement patterns, where they move and when they move to avoid spots that they've detected, you know, you in and, and determined that there's a danger there. Um, and the more that you pressure an area, the more anybody pressures a particular area, the more deer are going to avoid that. Gotcha. Not that you cannot see deer there, but it's just going to be a lot, you know, tougher. Yeah. So, you know, but you've got other things that are going on all the time. I mean, let's, let's back up here and let's just talk about, um, you know, hunters like to talk about all kinds of factors that they think influence deer movement. Rather than talk about all the factors people believe in, let's talk about the ones that have the most scientific evidence. And there are four. There are four that have the most, by far, backing scientific support from years of research, many studies, many locations, um, determining what influences deer movement. These four, you know, are head and shoulders above anything else. And you can take these to the bank and not worry about anything else. They are food mm -hmm. is the first one because a deer's got to eat every single day. Yep. And so wherever the food is, that's where the deer are going to tend to be. Now, the problem is food changes throughout the season. Um, you know, you acorns fall and then they go away and food plots are available and then they're not. And, um, you know, soft mass falls during a certain time and then it's gone. And forage, different forages are, are different values at different times of year. And some species come at different times. So, um, you know, and peak in nutritional value at different times. So you got all this fluctuation going on out there in food. That's where you have to do your scouting because just because something is deer food doesn't mean that that's what they're eating this week or today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the first one. Um, the second one is time of day, as we've already talked about, which is that's time of day has a very strong influence over deer movement. They move most around dawn and dusk, period. Mm -hmm. um, and then the rut is the third one. Because, for example, we know that bucks have their smallest home range and smallest average daily movement rate during the summer. And that builds and increases through the pre-rut, peaks during the peak of breeding and the peak of the rut. That's when they are going to be not only moving the most distance in a day, but they're going to be covering the most acreage and the highest percentage of their home range. Whatever their home range size is, during the rut, they're going to be covering almost all of it. Um, then that begins to shrink again. So once the rut's over, those bucks vanish again and, and shrink back into smaller areas and smaller core zones where there's food and cover and they don't move much. You know, um, on my cameras every year, what happens is as the rut approaches, all of a sudden you start seeing the real adult and mature bucks in the area a pop and appear on camera. And then as soon as the breeding's over, they're gone mm -hmm. and, and you just stop getting them. And that's simply because they're moving less. Yeah. So the rut plays a significant role in you know, particularly buck movement. And the fourth one is hunting pressure. It's, you know, where have you been? Where have you been? What stands have been you hunting? Have you been hunting a lot? What's your access route? Have you been walking in and out on the same trail all the time? Um, et cetera. So your pressure, the pressure of other people around you, whatever that is, deer, 
if you're predictable, deer will avoid you. So those are the four. And any of those things can be influencing what you're seeing deer do. Plus, like I said, just the random factor, just the, you know, chance. Just because you choose a place to hunt today that is ideal based on those four factors that we just talked about doesn't mean you're guaranteed to see deer that afternoon or that morning. Yeah. You can still, you know, see nothing. There's still chance involved. So um, that's just what you have to remember is that, you know, you've got to get as much information as you can on your side, know what the deer foods are out there on, at any given point, you know, uh, and, and what they're attracted to. You know, right now where I'm hunting here in Southeast Georgia, we had a terrible acorn crop. The, the water oak acorns are our predominant acorn terrible crop this year they was a total failure so our food plots are are heavily uh being browsed yeah. all fall and especially now so they're very attractive right now it wouldn't be that way if we had had a heavy acorn crop so you know things are always changing you got to always got to know the situation out there but then also just uh you know manage your pressure um you know scout the food and and really in the end just hope that uh, again, you have some luck and you're in the right place at the right time too. Gotcha. So first off, let me just say, I hate the rut. <laughs> I never <laughs> had good luck with it. I've killed one deer during it and it was the very first one. He was like a year and a half. Um, other than that, never had luck except one time I was hunting public and I've told this story a thousand times on the podcast. I'm sure everybody listening is going to be like, Oh, here we go again. But this deer was all of one sixties, huge 10, all I did was the bleak can and a couple grunts and he showed right up. Those two times are the only time I've ever had luck in the rut. So I just wanted to get that out there. I, <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to figure it out with the rut and it's, I can't seem to do it. The one thing though, I am curious. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this is how do you guys get this data? Because I know that obviously we have GPS tracking. I'm sure there's people in the field, but how do y'all get all of this data that you've got? I mean, do you guys have people in the field 24-7 or trail cameras or what's? Well, most of the data I'm quoting to you is done by various deer labs around the country at universities. Okay. Um, like the University of Georgia has a big deer lab. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mississippi State, LSU, Texas A&M, Kingsville, Penn State. Um, you know, there's there's others that we could, could list. Yeah. Um, around the country, those universities are doing the science that we're talking about. So they're okay. doing it. Um, it it's a various done in various ways. Some of them are GPS tracking collar studies go far enough back in time. And you'd be talking about radio telemetry collars rather than mm -hmm. GPS collars, but some of it is trail camera studies. Some of it is, you know, uh, capturing data, you know, habitat studies. It's, it's measuring food plot forage and how much was removed and how much remains. And, um, you know, it's, it's collecting data in a lot of different ways, depending on what your question is that you're asking. Gotcha. Okay. Cause I've always wondered, it's like, you hear people rattle stuff off. I'm like, how did you know that? Did you spend a week out there and just follow this deer around and look at the time and see what the conditions were? Um, just and for us, Eric, what we, what, what I think of, you know, as a journalist and educator helping deer hunters understand this stuff is what it's always good to see a pattern. In other words, if anytime a, a study finding is replicated in other areas or other studies, you know, that really adds to our confidence in, in something. 
um, not that that something that just one study finds is wrong. It's just that the more that it's backed up by other studies finding the same answer to the same question, the more confidence you have in that. It's just like sighting in your rifle. You know, the more uh, bullets you put on paper and, and the better your group, um, the better you feel about your zero. So, um, or sighting in a bow. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's just, that's another thing is that uh, we, in, in teaching what we teach about deer, um, we look for repeatability. And when I talk about those four factors that play a major role based on evidence, I'm talking, I'm not talking about one study found this. I'm talking about many studies at many universities over many years in yeah. many areas. So. Gotcha. So backing up a little bit to the right. Um, I've had this argument probably three times this season um, with, you know, friends of mine or a buddy of mine that came on the podcast a few weeks ago. And when it comes to the rut, I've heard people say that as soon as a buck sheds his velvet, he's ready to go. And then I've also heard people say that, you know, I mean, I've had the best luck in October personally. Um, the pre-rut's my favorite time of year, aside from early season where they just, you get them on the summer patterns and all that. But does the, does the rut really start for the bucks when they shed velvet or is it, you know, cause I have multiple questions about this. Just the first one. Because <laughs> uh, I'm trying to understand it, you know, because like I said, you hear multiple different things, but to, for that one to be the first one, it, it, do you think that's when people can maybe start doing like some tending grunts, maybe some contact grunts, throw the bleak can out a little bit? Um, or is it usually better to wait until like for our area, you know, mid to late October and then hit it hard? Yeah, I'd say wait because um, so what, what, puts buck bucks in the mode to breed is does when does are coming into estrus um and that estrus scent is on the wind and in the scrapes mm -hmm. uh that literally supercharges the buck and fires him up and gets him ready to go gotcha. the velvet shedding you know is something that has to do with day length and changing in in testosterone testosterone levels in the buck's body that that dictates that but it's also related to the rut and testosterone's on the rise but in the end, it takes also the does pheromones that tell him that there are does in the area that are in estrus that get him pumped up. You know, when they do this Fleming display, um, when they curl their lip, the lip curl display, um, they're literally, there's some doe urine there in a scrape or in the area that, that he's picked up. And he's literally sucking that scent into a special organ in the roof of his mouth. And it's going straight to the part of his brain that, that drives reproduction. And so it literally is like powering him up for the rut. And so that comes from the doe. The doe goes into estrus based on, again, day length is what yeah. triggers her to go in to go into the estrus. They don't they don't all go into estrus at the same time as you know. Some will be early, some will be late, but most will be around that peak time that they all uh, breed. Mm -hmm. So that's what, you know, literally the rut can be over, breeding can be over, and let's say this is often when people talk about a second rut in December, what that usually is, is a doe fawn, excuse me, a doe fawn that has reached the threshold body weight in her first fall to go in, to, be, to become sexually mature and go into estrus. And when she does that, that usually happens late. So it'll be like December, um, you know, or, or wherever you are, it'll be about a month after the normal peak of the rut. Mm -hmm. um, and when those doe fawns come into estrus, a few of them, uh, 
immediately all of a sudden you start seeing scrapes freshened up and you know bucks fighting and some running in the woods and chasing that's what's happened is uh, there's a doe in estrus that come in late and the bucks almost you know power back up and get back into beast mode and and they're ready to go you know if that happened in mid-spring if a doe came into estrus the bucks even without antlers could power up and be ready to go uh, by that yeah by that trigger but it's the doe that that triggers it now going back to your question about when to call and when to sort of look for rut activity, again, it's all relevant relative to that peak of breeding or the peak of the rut, wherever that is where you are. Mm-hmm. Most of Georgia, it's you know mid-November. Here in coastal Georgia, where I am, it's late October in the first week of November. So, you know, we and then southwest Georgia, it is later into December and even January. You get over to Alabama, it's later. You know, most of the country is mid-November, mm-hmm. but um the, the cycle of activity is usually that scrapes and rubs and fighting all happens before the peak of breeding. Scrapes usually peak in activity bef- just before the peak mm-hmm. of bre- actual breeding, and then they fall off quickly while breeding is still going on. Same thing with, you know, um, with chasing, fighting, um, rubbing, those sorts of things. So, you know, rattling and grunt calls tend to work best just ahead of peak breeding during the peak rut, peak rut. Um, I'm sorry, the pre-rut. So, you know, if you're, if you've got a mid, a mid November rut, you'd be talking about, yeah, the second half of October into early November is a great time to be using those calls. Um, it, then that, you know, intensity of competition tends to fall off, um, after the peak of breeding as, as it goes away. And then of course, during the peak of breeding, you've got a lot of bucks tending estrus does and, you know, they tend to lock down with her for about 24 hours to try to be the one who who breeds her and to protect her from other bucks so nobody else can breed that doe. And that tends to, you know, uh, lock those bucks down, make them tougher to see. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not invisible. They're still there and they're still, you know, moving and staying with this doe and can still be seen and killed <laughs> if you're in the right place at the right time. But they're not roaming and covering a lot of ground until that doe is no longer receptive and then they're going to move again. So as you get into that peak of breeding, that lot, you know, bucks locking down with a doe for several hours can, again, make it, you know, make you feel like uh, what happened, the bucks aren't moving. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, but but generally calling um, and, and sense and things like that tend to work on the front end of the peak of breeding rather than the back end. See, and that's that's something I had to learn um, last year, you know, because I, I guess what I was doing you know, because I, I listened to um, an episode of Southern Outdoorsman where they had Richard fought and he was talking about his calling stuff. He's actually supposed to come on next week. And I'm very interested in that because I don't know if I'm even calling right. But he um, he was saying, you know. October for him seems to work really well. What I've noticed here is October 25th. This is two years in a row now I've had. A five-year-old buck daylight last year on October 25th. I had a four-year-old daylight this year, and I was at work both days. So, mm, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, yeah, you're totally right, and it's like you read my mind because I was gonna ask you about the extended rut because I hear it all the time. Oh, second rut, third rut, and I'm like, guys, that that's not a thing. <laughs> like, you've well, got multiple it, deer coming into heat at different times. It so. is, it is a thing. And you know, when, when those doe fawns hit that and, and it's not all doe fawns and it's not in all conditions, you've got to have ample forage and nutrition and a deer herd that's really 
tuned up and healthy for Dauphins to reach that physical threshold of weight to, to do this their first year. Um, otherwise, very few of that, little of that happens. In a bad situation with a poorly balanced buck to doe ratio, if that's out of whack and you've got three, four, five does per buck out there, then the problem is that the bucks can't breed all the does on their first estrus cycle. And then they cycle again 28 days later if that happens. So then then that's the second rut, but that's caused by adult does, not by doe fawns. Yeah. And that's not a good thing. So um yes, it's a you know, it's a real thing to kind of see that second rut. And you know, I always say you want to try to figure out which cause is it because one's good and one's bad. Yeah. Um and so yeah, and you know, the other thing to remember about the intensity of the rut is that is related to your herd management. Yeah. Um, if you've been pressuring bucks and not harvesting any does for years and you've got, you know, uh, three, four, five does or more per buck out there and an unbalanced sex ratio, your rut is going to be less intense because bucks don't have to move very far to find another estrus doe after they've bred one they were with. Um, yeah. it, it is a, you know, in nature, a deer population should be, you know, roughly balanced um, in terms of numbers of bucks per doe, because every spring when fawns are born, they're born at a 50-50 ratio. It's us that throws it out of whack by put pressuring bucks and not shooting the does like we ought to. So when that, you know, when you tune that up and you get them toward that natural balanced ratio of bucks mm -hmm. to does, you that's when you really start seeing the rut competition, bucks chasing and bucks fighting because they've got to compete and they've got to move and cover ground. Yeah. To to be the first buck that that finds that estrus doe when she's no longer receptive, and if they were the one that got to breed her, then they got to move again and go find the next one. But again, if there's not a lot of bucks and there's a whole bunch of does, um, they do not have to move as far. They lock down again quickly, and that hurts you as a hunter. That makes those bucks less visible. So your herd management is important. And again, when when you got that tuned up competition, that makes grunt calls and rattling work better, and sense yeah. and attractants because bucks are you know keying on clues to to move quickly to the next estrus doe um on our land here in southeast georgia years ago grunt calls and rattling antlers never worked until we started taking a few does and protecting yearling bucks and building numbers of adult bucks to get toward a balanced buck to doe ratio and now grunt calls and rattling work during the right time of year so it's funny you say that because i probably for the past two months have been noticing that yeah, I'm still seeing bucks, but dude, the amount of does on both of my properties is just unreal. And I've already killed one, but like an idiot, I let a few walk when I was hunting a buck and it just kind of, now I'm like, dude, I'll shoot any doe that walks out. I don't care. I got three weeks left. Um, you know, I've got two more sits in my main spot or well, the spot I haven't really sat at. I've only hunted this one spot two times this year. And the reason being is because it's the one I hunted every week last year. So I want to give it a break. Um, turns out my target buck from last year is probably six years old. So he's much harder to hunt. And I almost feel like I messed that up because I probably should have taken a few does out of there because that's the majority of what I see. It's the same thing with my, I have a spot um, out by Jackson Lake. It's one acre and dude, I'll have 15, 20 does on camera mm. and then three bucks. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Now that's, I've called that my doe spot because there's so many of them, but yeah, I've definitely noticed that. And I, I guess 
a question I do have, um, sort of backing up to the whole rut deal, you know, like scrapes and stuff like that. I've noticed at both spots now, um, scrapes are getting used again. And I mean, I haven't freshened them up or anything like that. But do you have you heard of around this time scrapes coming back in? Because now we're at the end of December. I mean, is that kind of a normal thing or is it maybe because, you know, these does, I've only killed one. And there's so many of them that they're still chasing them around. Yeah, it could be. Um, scrapes get worked all year long um, at a very low level, except during just ahead of the peak of, of the rut. Yeah. But you, you can find deer working scrapes, checking them um, all year long. And so, you know, it's not on, on, out of the ordinary to see scrapes get freshened up this time of the year. Um, again, it could be that you've got a doe fawn that came into estrus and she's in the area and all of a sudden, you know, the communication network lights up again and, and bucks are, are on the hunt and leaving signpost uh, marks. Yeah. So, um, you know, it could be, you know, the thing to remember about about breeding is it's a bell curve. You've got some early does and you've got some late does and you've got the peak in the middle. That's the peak of the bell curve. Um, so there's always some does that are, that are coming in to estrus later. Um, just not as many of them. So yeah, that it's not unusual to see scrapes get freshened up into December and sometimes even later. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, man. Cause like I, one of the trees that I hunt out of literally is right next to a rub over at that small spot. And then I looked last week when I was there and the scrape was freshened up. I went to the other spot today. It was freshened up. I'm like, dude where's all the action? Cause I'm not seeing it. <laughs> yeah. like, What's going on guys. <laughs> um, it's, it's wild, man. And you know, I, I just, it, I feel like people will come on to like podcasts or they'll do, a, uh, and, and this is totally a, I guess, subjective or an opinion based statement, but people go on there and they say, Oh, this works, man. This is exactly what you want. And the, they're, they're wild animals, you know? I mean, we, we can try to bring them in, with like certain scents and stuff like that. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you about too. So when it comes down to um, like mock scrapes, I don't know if you use mock scrapes a lot, but the, the urine based scents, doesn't that stuff dissipate within like 15, 20 minutes, like the actual scent itself? You know, I don't know. Okay. Um, I know that, uh, you know, a lot of times in a mock scrape, what I'll do and a lot of, a lot of people do is I'll urinate it, urinate in it myself. Um, and of course, a lot of, there are some people who believe, oh, that's terrible. You know, that your bucks know that's you and deer know that's you. And that's, that's, you know, you're going to frighten them out of there. Mm -hmm. And there's no evidence that, that that's the case because what we know is basically, you know, after a very short period of time, 30 minutes or an hour or so, that's basically just becoming ammonia. And um, it's really, you know, not something that the deer recognizes apparently as being, you know, a human thing yeah. so much as just, you know, some kind of chemical compound that's, that's, you know, a, attracts their curiosity. Yeah. So, you know, in some studies <clears throat> were done on this, looking at, you know, putting various scents in scrapes and seeing which ones um, attracted deer to check it out. And pretty much they all worked. And in fact, even just scraping the dirt and not putting any scent down is pretty attractive, um, which makes sense. I mean, 
the smell of fresh dirt might indicate that, oh, there's a scrape over here. I'll, I'll go check it out because there's also, you got to remember the licking limb that's part of the structure of the scrape. They put scent on that limb as well. So a deer can, you know, scent check a scrape without pawing in the dirt or urinating in the dirt. Um, mm-hmm. There's scent on the limb as well. And so that's basically what we found is, is any kind of new scent in those scrapes, even just fresh scraped dirt can draw deer to check that out. And, and so, yeah, that's why mock scrapes work so well. You, you put a, you scrape the dirt in a place with a limb hanging over it at the right height. That's just, you know, particularly in a travel corridor, a trail, a, a, along a, a habitat edge or wherever the deer are tending to travel, some deer is going to stop there and check that limb and maybe paw in the scrape as well. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, scrapes are something that I really focused on this year because, you know, I, um, I kind of want to get away from the hunting over bait thing. Like I have nothing against it. I just feel like a six-year-old buck is probably going to see that and be like, okay, I'm coming back there tonight when it's dark and I know nothing's here. Um, now, yeah, he daylighted last year on it, but that was a year ago and he's a year smarter, you know? Yeah. So that's why I was wondering because, you know, I've tried, you know, like tinks and I, I'm not trying to name drop anybody. I mean, we're partnered with nose down, but you know, even then I put some of that stuff out and it might've been in the wrong time or in the wrong area and it didn't work. I've also put it in some other spots and it worked amazingly. Um, so that's why I was wondering if it is like, you know, if you've got like a scent or a urine based thing, if that has any impact, cause I know the gland stuff, like the oily gland based, uh, scents, those I've seen work tremendously because it doesn't dissipate. It stays there. And like, you'll, I've had bucks show up including that six-year-old I was telling you about. I've had him show up at the scrape and hit it and, and pee in it and rub his face all over the the uh, branch and everything. But then he disappeared. I haven't seen him in a month. So I don't know what happened to him. Yeah. He, he didn't do it last year, but, you know, he could have been killed. He could have moved off. Um, you know, I know he comes from a far distance. And that was kind of one thing that surprised me too. Um, deer really do move far distances for feed, don't they? Because... Where I'm at, um, last year, a buddy of mine or the neighbor that I'm friends with killed a deer. We tracked it for like 150 yards and we followed trails. We followed rubs and everything. This deer ran through, I guess, the trail he came in on. And it was like 300 yards away. We found bedding. We found rubs, scrapes, everything. And it was 300 yards away from where I was at. And these deer were still still showing up. So, I mean, are they able to smell that feed that far away and they come to it? Like, is their nose that strong? I don't, you know, the, the bottom line is we don't know. It's kind of difficult to test the uh, scent capability of a deer mm-hmm. because we can't get in their head and, you know, see what they're smelling or see, you know, smell what they're smelling. And um, it, it's just a matter of knowing that they, they're pretty good because they have a very large nose with a lot of olfactory uh, s- cells in their nose. Okay. And so, you know, compared to the size of our nose, and the, it's obvious that, that, they're very good at smelling and uh, that's an incredibly important sense for them in terms of surviving and avoiding predators um, and finding food. So, but you know, you got to remember that uh, they've got a home range. They're pretty familiar with it. They travel around in it. They know, um, you know, that's, that's the whole point of a home range for a deer is surviving is knowing your neighborhood, knowing where the food is, knowing where the cover is, knowing where the danger is um, and et cetera. 
Not that, you know, bucks and, and doves too at various times will leave their home range on short vacations and come back, but they don't uh, just, they're not, you know, migratory. They don't just roam. They're not nomadic. Yeah. Um, they have a home range and they know it pretty well. And it comes from simply experience, maybe learning from another doe, uh, another deer from the doe that raised them that over here, there are some white oaks and, you know, swing through there and check that at the right time of year. And you may find acorns. Um, so yeah, that's, that's difficult to answer. Um, but yeah, I mean, the scent thing, certainly we know that a lot of, you know, urine based scents and attractants work really well. Um, and in the right time of year and in, in the right place can, you know, draw a buck in to come in and check out the deal and see what's going on. And, yeah. um, you know, again, there's other factors involved. And if, if you're in a place where there's, uh, again, that out of whack buck to doe ratio, you know, scents are probably not going to be as successful as a place where you've got a more intense rut. Same with the calling. So, um, yeah, there's other factors involved. And just because you put scent out and nothing came in doesn't mean it didn't work or doesn't work. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, there's more to it. <laughs> and there, you know, there might be a buck in that area, but he's in another part of his own home range today while you've got, are out there trying that scent. And it's just, you know, there's not a buck in the area. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean that, see, that's the thing that has always confused me because I've heard from multiple different people, both sides, you know, Oh, you want all the does you can get. So the bucks want to come in. Uh, you want, you don't want to have that many does because you know, competition and all that. And I'm pretty much convinced i'm leaning on that you don't want too many does because this year i've been seeing bucks but it's always been at night or when i'm not there and there's a ton of does and i've called and I've, i mean the scent stuff has worked but calling and everything else is not and it just because you know i mean to me yeah the the thought process of you have a bunch of does bucks are going to go there but hearing you explain it, it makes perfect sense so. Yeah, that's a, and, and it's just a logical fallacy. It, yeah. it seems to make logic, make sense that you have a bunch of does, bucks will go, oh, all the does are over there. I'm going over there, but it just doesn't work that way. They have a home range. They circulate within that home range to find estrus does. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really have the capability to know that three valleys over there's better breeding opportunities. So I'm going over there yeah. unless their home range happens to intersect with that area. Um, you know, that's just, it's not how that works. They do leave their home ranges and bucks do have several bucks have, uh, will have strange shaped home ranges and may have, you know, two parts, two compartments to that home range where they spend, you know, the rut in one part of it and winter in the other or whatever that, you know, it's not just a circle. There's various shapes and sizes and types of home ranges. But the Mm -hmm. point is, the buck's going to spend most of his time in that home range and use the resources and breed the does that are in that home range. So <clears throat> they're not going to come from afar. You're not going to draw a bunch of bucks in by having a bunch of does. It works the opposite, like we said earlier, that when you've got way more does than bucks, bucks don't have to move much to find breeding opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to see them as much. They're not going to come to calling and, and rattling because they don't have to compete against other bucks to be able to breed. Um, so it's not a good situation. And then beyond that, if you're stockpiling does and not taking does like you should, you may be beyond the carrying capacity of the habitat. And depending on the, the quality of the habitat and how many deer you got, you know, they may be over browsing the habitat 
and there's not adequate nutrition for all the deer to go around. That's a bad situation, and you don't want to, you know, perpetuate that just because you think you're you're attracting bucks in. Yeah. So we all have the responsibility to evaluate the level of the deer population relative to available food where we hunt. And there's a lot of ways to do it, but if you're in a situation where you don't have enough food all year long to go around for the deer in the area, um, you need to take some does and increase habitat quality. You know, it's a two-way street. You can reduce deer density, but you can increase food quality mm -hmm. uh, at the same time to allow you to carry more deer. Uh, but that's the situation you, you got to fix. And um, it means ultimately healthier deer, healthier bucks, bigger bucks, and yes, bigger antlers. So if you're, if you're you know, if you want to hunt bucks, you need to have a healthy deer population that's in balance with the habitat. Stockpiling does to try to attract bucks in, A, doesn't work, and B, it's really not a good idea for the health of the herd. Yeah. Yeah, so what I'm getting from that is you're saying the next three weeks before regular season goes out, I need to shoot every doe that I can. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, not kidding. Necessarily. I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. Not, yeah. not necessarily, Eric. I mean, everybody has to look at that locally and decide you know, what situation are they in? Yeah. And just because you sat in a stand and saw 20 does and three bucks doesn't mean you're three to 20 ratio. Yeah. Um, what we see when we hunt is affected again by other factors. And, it, it, um, you know, what you want to be looking at is there's, there's some habitat indicators or certain forage species that, you know, maybe you can't find and they're overbrowsed. Mm -hmm. uh, if those are first choice forage species and they're gone and they're they're way overbrowsed that's a that's a red flag if you kill deer in the fall does and bucks and you're not finding any fat on them mm -hmm. uh, and you can identify the kidneys in the gut pile because they're not covered in fat mm -hmm. um, that's not a good sign you want to see kidneys that are so encased in fat that you can't even find them yeah. you can't recognize them they just look like balls of fat um, if you're you know again signs like these can be good indicators the habitat and the deer themselves will tell you whether you need to chew those and how many. Gotcha. So let me, let me give you a, what do you want to call it? I'll ask you a personal question. Uh, if you were in my position where, so I'll, I'll lay it all out. I got seven acres that I have permission on. Technically I've got 15 because the neighbor said I could hunt over there and kill some does um, if I wanted to, but he goes out there too. And I'm not trying to, we are, we're already hunting kind of close to each other. I'm not trying to get any closer. But the property I've got is seven acres. I have free range to do whatever I want. On the back end of it is two to 300 acres of timberland. To the left of it is another 50 to 60, 70 acres. And then you've got like two really big farms that are basically between the woods and the road. So the food I would assume is there because you've got me hunting that's feeding, the neighbor's feeding, a guy up the street is feeding. I know three houses down there's people feeding and at the beginning of the road there's another feeder there so i think that the food situation would be good but in in everything i've told you would you would you think okay i need to take a few does out of here or would you still try because i have one buck on that property i'm really trying to get would you still try to focus on that just just for the next three weeks Cause I feed year round. I put mineral out, you know, I trim, you know, shooting lanes and stuff. I try to update the habitat as best I can. I don't really know a lot about it. So I'm still sort of learning that, but for the next three weeks, what, what would you be focusing on as far as like what you'd like to take? Uh, you know, I think it, it does not hurt 
to take a doe or two. You don't have to get mad at them and try to shoot every doe you want, <laughs> every every doe you see. But to take yeah. one or two, a for the freezer, but also to to look at the animal and get some sense of health and age. You know what kind of fat are you seeing on that animal? And and if this time of year, late in the season, you shoot a doe and she doesn't have much fat, you know, there's not enough food out there. Okay. Um, for the deer that are in the area, uh, hopefully you would shoot a doe and see, you know, nice fat encased kidneys and 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 lots of fat all over the body going into winter, and know that you know that's pretty good. You know, you want to look at several deer, not just one. So yeah. hopefully, you know, maybe your neighbors take a few. You know, seven acres is going to be tough for you to manage the deer density through doe harvest by yourself unless other people are participating around you because you start shooting a bunch of deer on seven acres, the pressure factor is going to defeat you pretty quick. You know, they're, you're going to be less effective at getting that second and that third doe. Um, so uh, you, that's where your neighbor's going to have to help if you really do need to take some does. But yeah, go ahead and shoot you one or two and, and uh, or as many as you can use or donate one to somebody, to a neighbor that could use venison or whatever. And, and use that animal to, as an indicator itself to tell you something about the deer population. So, um, and yeah, it doesn't sound like you're, you know, in a situation where you don't need to harvest does, where you need to be protecting does because you don't have enough deer. Yeah. Um, very few people are in that situation anyway. So yeah, I'd, I'd say get a doe, you know, and, and going back to, you know, having seven acres, it's so critical on, on a small property like that manage your pressure and, and be wise about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, because many times with a small property like that, what you can offer that the other properties don't is often a sanctuary, yep. a place that's not being pressured. And that's often how you can be an effective hunter on small property is to not pressure the deer so that deer come to you when the pressure's on everywhere else, you know, and you need to also look at the landscape around you, you know, look on an aerial, drive around, mm -hmm. try to get a sense of, of what's abundant and what's missing from a deer's point of view in the area. What type of food is there that's abundant? And if you've, you know, there's crops or, uh, you know, early successional cover or whatever it is, browse, forage, feeders, that's abundant somewhere else. Obviously you don't really need to provide that on your seven acres, but if yeah. there's, if there's not a lot of cover, for example, a lot of, you know, uh, open hardwoods or whatever with no understory, then providing some cover and a place to hide on your seven acres would be, you know, the way to go. So offer what's needed, offer what's what the deer don't have a lot of in the surrounding area to make your place more attractive. Many times what it is that they need more of is a place to go that's not pressured. So um, that's how, you know, hunting your seven acres wisely. And with only seven acres, you know, unfortunately, wisely often means not going when you were hoping to go hunting because the wind was in the wrong direction or, or whatever for you to go into your seven acres and making the choice to stay home. That's unfortunately what that means sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole reason I haven't hunted any more than two times up there because, you know, last year I overpressured it and I've done a ton of scouting back there and it is mostly open hardwoods. Um, it, it's so funny that you even said that because I was starting to think of kind of how that whole property is set up and there's not a lot of, cover. I mean, I've had photos of deer bedding in the field that I'm hunting and it's only like a small, maybe 30 yard by 40 yard clearing. And, you know, I've seen them bed there. And to me that says, okay, they feel pretty comfortable. I mean, I could be wrong, but yeah, man. I mean, that's kind of what I was aiming for this year is to sort of make it like a sanctuary for them almost because I only go in there if I'm going to freshen up the feed 
um, or if a battery or batteries in the camera dies and it's not a lot. I mean, it's really not a lot. And I've, like I said, I've only hunted it twice. So I'm trying to do that, but what would you think? So how would I, how would I give them like the cover they would need? I know that they like privet around this time of year. I know in the summertime they like, you know, kudzu and stuff, but what, what would be like the next step in the off season for me to be able to give them that cover and everything on that seven acres? Uh, get some sunlight on the ground if you can. Um, do you own that seven acres? No, it's my grandparents' place. And okay. the issue that I run into, um, exactly related to what you just said, is that clearing, when it's summertime, they cut it. And when it's not cut, there's deer in and out there all the time. They're always bedded. When they cut it, then they go off somewhere else. Yeah. So <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. I kind of don't have much of a choice. The good thing, though, is next to... So on the neighbor's side, um, I believe it's the, actually really on both sides. Closest to where I'm hunting, though, there is a um, good little clearing, kind of like a power line situation where there's a very high uh, wheatgrass. And then the place that we went to last year to get that guy's deer, where I told you, oh, they're coming from you know 300 yards away, that was all wheatgrass, too, and another power line. So is that somewhere that they might be betting at where it's really tall, like six, seven foot grass? Yes, absolutely. Perfect. Yes. Uh, tall grass, thick cover of any kind in the understory. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of privet. That's an invasive that uh, is, you know, you ought to try to control. Um, it's, it's only decent cover early and then it kind of heads out and shades the ground and then it's just mud underneath there and, and yeah. that's all. And deer will eat privet in the winter, but it's not high quality forage. Okay. Um, so privet is something, you know, uh, I'd put sunlight on the ground instead of privet, chop the privet down and spray the stump with some herbicide and kill it and try to control that. And you'll get better. You'll get, you know, native grasses like broom sedge and, uh, you know, other small shrubs and, and grasses and forbs and vines coming in there that deer eat and bed in. Mm -hmm. So whether it is, you know, you've got sweet gum trees that you could kill to put some sunlight back on the ground or, some pine timber that could be thinned commercially or just, you know, cut down with a chainsaw to, to thin those out. Um, hardwoods that are overabundant, like, you know, say you got a, you know, water oaks tend to spring up and grow real easy. Say you got a choked thicket of water oak trees, kill some of them, cut them down, make some firewood and, yeah. and uh, thin spread those out. The, the trees that you leave will produce more acorns now that they've got more room to grow a bigger crown. So, Hmm. kill some oak trees, thin those out, space them out. And then yeah. in between them, you get some sunlight on the ground and that's how the cover grows. So yeah, it's, it's a matter of getting sunlight on the ground. And then, you know, if you can, um, using fire to maintain that and basically to hit rewind. So if you put some sunlight on the ground and you get broom sedge and grasses and forbs and, and vines and stuff coming in there and deer bedding in there, it's going to be great for two, maybe three years. And then, you know, a shrub, layers going to develop tree saplings are coming in there and you're starting to get some shade on the ground again you can hit it with some fire uh during the winter roll that back to zip to square one and start it over so fire is kind of how you maintain it and prevent it from reaching that stage again where it's all shady and and you've lost the the value of cover and forage for deer gotcha well that actually gets me excited then because my grandparents told me that after deer season they're going to clear out um the woods between they're not really clear out, but kind of like cut, you know, the 
like what you just said, basically give it more space where they can see straight to the back. Cause right now what it yeah. is, is it's literally a mix of oaks and pines, some sweet gums here and there. It's yeah. just totally mixed and you can't, they don't like it. So they're like, well, we're going to call a guy. He's going to come and cut down some of the smaller stuff, um, clear it up a little bit. And so what it sounds like to me is that they're basically doing what I need to do for me. <laughs> so I should yeah, be definitely. Definitely. Um, now, you know, they may want to, you may want to talk to them about the goals with that because certainly you can hire somebody to come in and, you know, do some cleanup and whatnot, but they may not be necessarily doing that with deer or wildlife in mind. Yeah. And, you know, on seven acres, that's a great little laboratory. You could really get in there, um, get you some herbicide and a chainsaw, kill the, all the sweet gums. You know, that's an extremely low value tree, okay. not valuable for timber, not valuable for wildlife. And just shading, putting shade on the ground, it grows and outcompetes all the other trees. So kill all the sweet gums. That's free sunlight you could be putting on the dirt. Okay. Then start. Then look at your oaks and get selective. If you've got any white oaks in there, obviously, you know, you want to encourage those. But again, you can have too many white oaks. Let's say in a little spot, you've got 10, 12 white oak saplings all growing uh, or older trees, you know, growing up together. And you, you know how they do when they're growing close to each other. They just get tall and spindly. Because they're they're competing against each other to get up there and get to the sun instead of growing outward and round yeah. a big you know crown of le of limbs and leaves, they're they're going straight up. So select a good one, cut down the others, and give one of them the space to fill. Then you've put sunlight on the ground and you are improving acorn production. So selecting a few oaks of whatever species it is to save and remove the others, kill your sweet gums. Any other tree, maples or whatever that's in there, you know, um, red maples, or if it's small enough, just cut it off at the stump and leave it alone because those stump sprouts that come out are great deer forage out of the stump. Really? So, yeah, it just depends on the species, but there's a lot of that kind of um, cultivating of the, the forest you can do, introducing sunlight, selecting desirable trees and encouraging them. You know, it's a, it's a great uh, project that you can do that really can can make the world a difference for deer. Well, it sounds like I'm going to be even more busy in the off season. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh hey, man, that's my, that's my favorite time of year is habitat yeah. season. So. Hey, jury say it right, man. You kill them in the off season. That's so, right. That is right. Um, one thing I am curious about. So I mentioned earlier about the target buck that I was after. Um, saw him the second week into season, could have shot, but the wind switched. They smelled me. It was a whole mess. Um, he has daylighted some, but that what I'm getting at is he was a big six point, um, beautiful deer, right? I've never hunted a big six point before. Just my daughter named him trike. Like we kind of have a relationship with this deer now. Right. <laughs> so I've been watching him since July. He's been healthy. Everything's been good. And then November hits, he's gone for two weeks. And he comes back, I think it was like November 13th or 14th or something like that. Has both sides. I'm excited. Okay, cool. He's back. I'm going, I'm going after him. The next morning he shows up, his left side is gone. And so I'm like, well, that sucks. Now he's off the, off the list. You know, maybe I can go find it if he, you know, shed it or broke it or whatever. So I started paying attention to his actual physical status right this dude got so skinny he looked like a one-year-old and i'm guessing him at like maybe three maybe four right so 
I got a little bit nervous and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to protein, 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 protein. He's fine now, but do you think maybe he rutted too hard and that's what made him drop the side or maybe he got sick? He never got shot. I've gotten up close photos of him. There's no wounds or anything like that. Um, and then I found his shed last week and it was 100% shed off. It, there was huh. no bone next to or connected to it. I mean, you look at the pedicle and you can see the dried blood on it. I mean, is that so he shed? He shed one side and the other side is still there. Yep. And he's been That's... fighting and his hawks are black. So I'm like, dude, what's going on with you? Yeah, that's unusual. Um, early shedding usually happens when testosterone levels drop early, and that usually has to do with nutritional stress or some kind of injury or disease. In other words, you know, he's not a normal healthy buck, mm. and that's why he shed his antlers early. It's unusual that he shed one and not the other. Normally, yeah. both would come off in that situation, um, but it could be that um i don't know maybe you know the the layer that that connects the antler to the skull was weakened because his testosterone levels dropped just from rut stress and nutritional stress and then he got in a fight and and it got knocked off that, yeah. that side got knocked off um that's possible but yeah the the thing is yes bucks lose a lot of weight during the rut um and that's because they are traveling fighting breeding and they're not eating a lot they they don't eat much during that time period they fatten up in the summer to get ready for that and they'll lose a lot of that fat and that body mass before the rut's over that normally happens that's one of the important reasons you want to have high quality habitat so that in the winter when bucks are post-rut they can recover quickly on food plots forage whatever it is that you're supplying um and make it through winter mm -hmm. so but yeah sometimes and, and a lot of things can happen it could yeah. be an injury he could have been you know gored by another buck or you know injured somehow <coughs> um he might have it's just all kind of things i can speculate yeah. about all kind of stuff a lot of things could in addition to the rut exertion could be causing that um so yeah it's just not sure yeah, because, I mean, I I just – it blew my mind because I've, I've never seen a buck shed one side, keep the other, keep fighting, and then go back into run. He's all he's all bucked up again. I mean, he, he looks fine now. And, yeah. you know, it's – the good thing about where that specific spot is is it's 200 yards from the lake. I can see the lake when I'm in the tree stand. It's got really good feed around. There's multiple different – you know, food plots and stuff. The oaks are insane. Um, there's a natural mineral site 80 yards away from my stand that I didn't even know about. And then on top of that, I'm giving them the best feed that I can find. It's very expensive, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> deer expensive. But yeah, um, yeah I, I was just wondering because, you know, like I said, I sent that photo to multiple different people and half of them were like, oh, he broke it off. Other half is like, oh, he looks a little sickly. He might've dropped it. But to me, if, it, if he's sick, you would think he'd drop both sides. And the crazy part is I know. he dropped it right where I walk in, right where I park the truck. Whenever I go over there to feed, it was sitting right there and I never saw it. Mm. I'm just like, I even ran over it with my truck and didn't know it. Like, wow. It, yeah, dude. It, so I don't know. I mean, 
it it's i feel like i learn something new every year with these animals and it's you know that that's again why i enjoy listening to you so much because you rattle off all the stuff you know and i'm like oh i had questions about all of that but now <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean um well, look to switch gears man you know before we wrap this up um how has your season been i mean what's what's been going on with you know your hunting beyond any giants any any um what's that one buck that was killed in south georgia a, a few years ago that's the state record the uh god what's it called it's not the brewster buck i keep thinking that that's illinois what's the one the pageant mm. buck you want to know oh, yeah. like that Bill Joe pageant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um no, I have not had a, a great season this year. Um, Dang. We had, uh, we've got a number of bucks on camera here on the family farm that, you know, well, I'd say really only about two, maybe three that were of an age class that, you know, we wanted to take. We're trying to get, you know, four to maybe five years old, if we can, on our bucks here. Um, and we don't do it every year. We don't kill a buck like that every year. There were a couple that were it looked interesting this year on camera. Um, now, the year before, I'd been following the same buck for four years. Um, and last year was the fourth year we had him, on, had him on camera. I'm pretty sure he was five, possibly six okay. in that year. But it was the fourth year, and, and I, I was getting pictures of him all the time. He was real easy to get on camera. And dad, my dad and I, my brother, we all were hunting him and uh, never saw him excuse me and this year he vanished he has not turned back up so i don't know what happened to him um you know we were excited about hunting him this year and he's gone well, as far as we know nobody in the area killed him um we don't know that he was killed on the highway so it's just you know who knows a mystery he disappeared but yeah so but but uh there were a couple bucks i was trying to hunt um back during october november during our peak rut um was unsuccessful and now I'm hunting those. So, yep. yeah, I, I'm hoping to get one in the freezer before, uh, actually two more before the season's out. So, gotcha. Yeah, that's kind of my goal. I mean, I've had my season, dude, it's just been wild. Uh, <laughs> shot a doe on the shoulder. She's still alive. I have photos of her with the wound and everything. I don't know how mm. that happened because I thought it was a great shot. The next day, gut shot a doe. That was heartbreaking. Yeah and found her the next morning and after that it's just been I had the the coolest the coolest part all season we were hunting public and it was the first weekend of november and this is the same spot that i was telling you earlier i saw that giant booner just walk out see me because i was in <laughs> it was a rookie mistake i was in the right tree facing the wrong way and i had seen probably a thousand squirrels that morning and this is only at 7.30. So, you know, the sun's only been up for maybe 45 minutes. Already seen a ton of squirrels and I'm just getting frustrated. I'm cold. I didn't plan well. And, you know, I do the call sequence and turn around because I think it's a squirrel. I'm not thinking, oh, it could be a deer. And I hear a twig snap and I just spin around. And there he is, just 10 yards looking at me. Oh. But so <laughs> this year, dude, it was, oh, man, it was heartbreaking. Um, but this year we were hunting that same spot and I had this doe and this young button buck walk or this young little spike walk in and I don't know what was going on with them. The doe must not have smelled me something, but I was able to watch her come around and get within five yards of me and I didn't take a shot. 
that's been my season as I see deer and I'm like, man, there's something better. And then I don't see anything after that. So no. I feel you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you um, know, it's, it's deer hunting. And even, even after years of following the science and writing about it and, you know, knowing it so well from having reported on it that, that I can, you know, answer questions from you mm-hmm. about this stuff. I still, you know, struggle with it. It, it. There's no guarantees. You know, you can put all this evidence and and do it right. You know, do the herd management right and hunt right and, and manage your pressure and do everything smart as you can. But it's still hunting. Yeah. And they they are a wise, smart animal. Um, and they are difficult to hunt. That's why we. That's why we love it. If it was oh, yeah. easy, we wouldn't we wouldn't love it like we do. So. That's why I bow hunt. <laughs> yeah. It's even harder. <laughs> um, well, I have two more questions for you before we wrap it up. Um, they're kind of related, kind of not. One's about baiting. One is about EHD and CWD. Which would you like to do first? <laughs> um, I'll go ahead. You said baiting first. Let's, okay. let's go with that one. So baiting became legal all throughout the state back in 2018, right? I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Have you guys got any? <clears throat> Actually, I, it might have been earlier than that. You said 2018? Yeah. Um, I think it was earlier than that. Okay. That it went statewide. So, I'm not exactly sure though. So there's been a few years where, you know, people have been baiting and all this other stuff. I'm sure the deer have caught on by now, but do y'all have any, or have you seen any um, data or research that relates to baiting that maybe it, you know, I'm not going to say messes up the movement, but that it sort of changes the movement from like a natural food source movement i guess if, if that makes sense yeah and the university of georgia did a study on this uh in georgia you know knowing that this was coming um they uh looked at in an area where they had several bucks collared with gps collars mm-hmm. and where hunting was taking place and baiting was taking place and they studied the deer movement and the basic thing they saw was something i had mentioned earlier which was that mostly at bait sites in daylight you saw does and yearling bucks Mm-hmm. And adult bucks rarely came to bait sites in daylight. Um, they came at night. Overall, more deer came at night than during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, it was also socially segregated with adult bucks being almost all in the night. Rarely do you see an adult buck over a hunted bait site in the daylight. That's okay. just what they found. And that, that has um, matched with my experience running a trail camera. Um, you know, uh, using corn on the ground, using bait for a camera to do a camera survey. I'll do that, you know, preseason just to try to see what's going on with deer in the area before hunting season opens. Mm-hmm. And, um, all of my adult buck and mature buck pictures that I get every year are on either scrape photographs, scrape setups, trail setups, um, places like that. I never get adult bucks with corn. I just don't. Yeah. Um, and if I do, it'll be, you know, at night. Uh, so daylight pictures is what I'm talking about. Um, that's, you know, that's what the UGA study found. So it, it's, um, and that's been repeated in other areas that that same pattern has been, you know, shown. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you can't kill deer hunting over a corn pile. You can. Yeah. But, um, and I'm sure mm-hmm. that people have killed adult bucks and even mature bucks over a corn pile. It's not that it's impossible. It's just that the data shows that it's one of the least likely places in a buck's home range for you to encounter him in the daylight. Interesting. 
So I might have to change my whole setup this this next couple of weeks because what I've been thinking is, <clears throat> you know, I've got and it, it's kind of hard, at least on that one property, because I only have one access point. So that definitely makes it difficult. Yeah. Um, but once I get to where the feed's at, I can go any direction I want. So what I'm thinking about maybe trying is, you know, over the next couple of days, if this one bug that I'm after still starts showing up, you know, cause he has daylighted like right at the crack of dawn. I mean, we're talking 640, this buck's in there and then he's gone before the sun really comes up. So I could see him if I was there, but he is not there in the daylight. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe, you know, maybe try and go in early because um, I'm going there this weekend, uh, try to go in a little early and pick a spot that could be along his travel route to it. And the only thing I worry about is if, you know, if I'm walking in and I'm going towards where he might be coming from, I may run into him. Yeah. So you think maybe trying to find where he goes, like after the bait site would be probably better because he's not going to be there? Yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can pattern him to that detail, to that level and know where he's moving, what, what part of your property he's moving through, what cover is he using? Um, sure. Yeah. That's good information, you know, but I think any kind of change up that you can do any kind of climbing a different tree than you've been climbing, yeah. what, you know, um, just hunting a different spot, whatever it is, uh, any kind of change up you can do will, will help you um, because it, it removes the predictability that buck's ability ability to predict you gotcha yeah and again that's why i've been staying out of there so i can't be patterned you know right. i mean yeah okay right. they know i come out there maybe every every other wednesday you know when i have time and i re-up the feed and then i'm gone but right. i haven't hunted there like i said but twice so okay so that's the one the one thing with the baiting i was very curious about that because you hear one side you know and i love t-bone to death but you hear the whole, if you ain't baiting, you're waiting thing. Then you hear the other side, you know, we don't bait because it's not hunting or whatever, or it makes it harder. I, I just wanted to clear it up with you to see what the truth was. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, not to get into the ethics of it. You know, that's a different thing. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to go there okay. or argue that. I'm just telling you the science, which has been done that, and it makes sense. It just shows that a hunted bait site is, uh, one of the least likely places to encounter a mature buck in his home range. Gotcha. Well, that changes my entire season for next year. I'm going to try <laughs> a lot more stuff. Um, okay, cool. So the last question I have kind of a two, I guess you could say a two part or not really, but do we, do we have EHD in Georgia and CWD? Do we have that? Is it a real concern? I've heard multiple different things on both sides you know, saying it is, saying it's not, where do you guys stand as far as EHD around here and CWD? Because we don't have any confirmed CWD cases yet, do we? No, we do not have CWD in Georgia that we know of. Okay. That's chronic wasting disease. We do have EHD, which is epizootic hemorrhagic disease. We've had that for many years. Okay. Um, the deer in Georgia are exposed to EHD and blue tongue virus, which are basically two viruses in the same family. Um, every year at a low level and have been for a long time. You know, um, the disease study unit at the University of Georgia was established over 50 years ago to study hemorrhagic disease in deer. Oh, wow. And um, so it's it's been around 
Georgia deer have a pretty high level of immunity to it. And so the, the death rate with EHD in our deer is pretty low. Um, unlike other areas in the North where it's been moving and, and, uh, you know, the disease appearing in those new areas, those deer have lower levels of immunity. So, uh, you get higher death rates with those outbreaks, but, um, we haven't had a really bad EHD year in Georgia since about 2012. Um, but again, you'll have a little bit every single year in Georgia, there's going to be a few deer die of EHD and in the South really, um, but so, yeah, it's here and it's not really anything we can do about it. It's a virus transmitted by a biting gnat. And yeah. there's really not much that we can do. It's, it's cyclical based on drought and temperatures and the insect population, et cetera. So there's, we really can't manage that. But yeah, so we have that. CWD, we don't have that we know of. And let's hope we never find it. Yeah. Um, I think that it's increasingly likely we will eventually find it because it's spreading slowly around the nation, state to state. We're now up to 32 states. Florida found it in the panhandle, you know, earlier this year. Yep. I remember seeing um, that. And that's only about uh, 40, 60 miles from the Georgia border. Mm-hmm. Um, North Carolina's finding it. Alabama's got it in Northwest Alabama. And one case, I think, in Southern Alabama. So, you know, it's, it's sprinkling and popping up. Georgia's Georgia, South Carolina are the last two deep South states that, that don't have it. Kentucky found it here recently. Um, so it's coming and yes, it is serious. And yes, we do believe that it is a serious thing. It is yeah. not something you want. Um, you want to find it as early as possible if it reaches a new area and you want to manage it. You can't turn your back on it and say, that's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. We don't have to do anything about it. You do have to manage it. Because we've seen the lessons of what happens in areas where you don't manage the disease. It simply spirals out of control. The prevalence rate keeps climbing. Like areas in Wisconsin now where 50 and 60% of the bucks have this disease in those areas. Wow. And when you're, t- when you're talking about a disease that is always fatal, um, that's not a good thing. Yeah. So you don't want to get there. The states that are managing it are managing to keep that prevalence rate down in the single digits. You know, 3 5% maybe. Um, so you have to manage it. You got to watch out for it. Um, and you got to take it seriously and you can't deny it and walk away from it and ignore it. Um, we have to, you know, hunters have to play the role in fighting CWD. We have a role to play mm-hmm. in, you know, as simple as not crossing state lines with the deer carcass, knowing, you know, if you're hunting out of state this year, knowing whether you're going to a CWD zone to hunt. And if you are, following the regulations to make sure you don't spread the disease out of that zone and bring it home with you. Um, getting your deer tested when you're in those zones. Even in Georgia, if there's an opportunity, Georgia DNR is doing some testing at a low level in every county in the state. And if you know you see an opportunity and they ask you, hey, we're trying to collect samples in this area from deer for CWD testing, participate and help out and do the testing. Because again, finding it early is extremely critical. Um, so you know, I hear some people do, say don't test because if we find it, then, you know, uh, that then they want to come in and have all these rules and regulations. Sure, they are, because we have to manage that disease. And yeah. if you if you don't test and if you don't report sick deer when you see them, you're only worsening the situation. You know, we've we've got states like Arkansas and others. Tennessee was the same way that by the time they found it where they found it, it had been there a long time. Mm-hmm. And at that point, there's nothing that you can do. So. Um, so, yeah, it's something hunters have to play a role. We need to be engaged in it, learn about it, and find out, you know, all the ways that you can help fight this disease because we really got to fight it. Gotcha. So I've heard, like, 
have we ever really and, and and again this is just stuff i've heard this isn't my opinion because i mean i sure i know you hear yeah, everybody here, yeah, you hear all i just want to clarify that <laughs> yeah but i've heard people say that we've never actually found a deer that was 100 percent confirmed killed by cwd is that true no that's not true okay Got no it. a lot and of deer have died thought, no because i'm like yeah. how are you going to have a big uproar about this but then you've never really found a confirmed case yeah and that's as far as like that's um, what killed it you know yeah, that's untrue. Here's the problem. Um, CWD kills slowly. Mm-hmm. A deer will carry this disease for a year to two years on average before showing symptoms. Oh, wow. So, but meanwhile, they're contagious. They're spreading the prions to other deer during that entire period. Mm-hmm. So it takes a year to two years to kill an individual deer. And so the uh, the problem is it's neurodegenerative, meaning it's, you know, it's it's cognitively impairing these deer as they slowly reach that point of showing outward signs um they're losing cognitive ability slowly over that year to two years and that makes them more prone to die of other things and the research has been done on this a lot of studies have been done on this uga has got a big study going in arkansas right now Mm -hmm. in the cwd zone there showing that deer with cwd die of other causes faster and more prevalently than healthy deer. They get hit by cars more often than healthy deer. They get killed by coyotes and other predators at at higher rates than healthy deer. They are shot by hunters at higher rates than healthy deer. Um, And so, you know, they, again, cognitive decline and it's slow, but it predisposes them to die of other things. And they don't look sick until the end of that cycle. And then they're, they're, so the problem is most of these deer in the wild die of other things before they start looking sick gotcha this is why people in cwd areas say i don't see the problem i don't see sick deer i haven't seen a deer die of this ehd is completely different when we get a bad ehd outbreak everybody knows it in that area there's deer floating in the creeks and this rotten deer smell on the wind and it's obvious you Mm -hmm. know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and deer recover from that and move on (coughs) But CWD doesn't work that way. It doesn't fill the woods with dead deer. It is a slow killer, um, and, but it's slow. And the thing is, there's no break for CWD. It doesn't yeah. go away during cold weather like EHD do, does. It keeps spreading and it keeps killing deer slowly over time. So it is, that's the thing. It's very deceptive. And it is very easy for hunters to say, I don't see the problem. Mm-hmm. And you just have to understand the way the disease works and the impact of it. You know, no, is it going to, wipe out deer in an area sometime soon no it's not but what it does is it adds another source of mortality to the uh pie of deer that's being having slices taken out of it mm-hmm. you know you look at your deer population out there various things kill them cars kill them uh, accidents hunters kill them that's the number one you know source of deer mortality is hunters yeah. Um, now you're adding an, another one. You're adding CWD. And as the prevalence rate climbs, more and more bucks and does every year are dying of that too. And you reach a point eventually as the prevalence rate climbs to where the population can't sustain all this added mortality without declining. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the only thing we can do to stop population decline is to, to reduce hunter harvest. So that's the problem. It's not that it's going to wipe <clears throat> out deer. It's going that it's going to eventually in these areas over a long time period make it more difficult for us to have hunter harvest in those areas. So 
there you go. It's not, you know, it's not a lightning bolt yeah. that that everybody sees and goes, oh Lord, we got a problem like EHD. Mm-hmm. It is a very quiet, sneaky killer that you have to take seriously. And didn't that happen with the mule deer population out west where they found it and the the population just started declining because no one did anything about it? I, I thought I read right. something somewhere that happened. Yes, there are documented population declines uh, among mule deer out west where they've had this disease the longest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That breaks my heart because I want to go mule deer hunting so bad. <laughs> it's like a top thing for me. Um, okay, one more thing about it, and then I promise I will let you go. I've been really enjoying this. I, I appreciate <laughs> coming on. I'm learning a lot. Um, so I've got buddies of mine um, that live up north. You know, I'm getting pretty close with like working class bow hunter guys. You know, I got a couple buddies up in Michigan. <clears throat> they can't bait. This is what they tell me. They can't bait because of CWD. Now, my argument to that is deer are going to touch noses anyway. We have scrapes. We have licking branches, water sources, other feed. <clears throat> Do you think the baiting thing is is helping propel the spread in places yes. where you can bait with it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Can you explain why so I can understand that? Because So we've studied the science on this for a long time. And our official position as an organization is when it comes to baiting, um, we don't think you ought to legalize hunting over a bait in areas that don't have it. So we, mm-hmm. we don't see the upside to it. We think it's better to not have it. Mm-hmm. But once a state has legalized hunting over bait, we're not going to fight to, to you know, ban that again yeah. unless CWD appears. Gotcha. And so when you have CWD in any area, we support a ban on feeding and baiting because the science is very clear that does speed the spread of the disease in a deer population because mm-hmm. they're coming to these micro sites and feeding very close in close quarters. There's urine, there's feces, mm-hmm. um, there's point. other body fluids there. And all of that transmits the prions. We see the, you know, that you find the evidence of the prions at mineral sites, at bait sites accumulating in the soil. It's on the feeders. <clears throat> you know, when you have feeders where they have to put their mouth on it, Mm-hmm. Um, they have swabbed those and they found CWD prions on feeders in CWD zones. Um, so yes, it does contribute to rapid spread or faster spread of the disease than in an area where you don't have feeding and baiting. Um, bottom line, it does. And that's why state agencies ban feeding and baiting where they have CWD. It's why we support that decision. So I was wrong. And I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, it makes sense. Hearing you explain it, I totally get it. And I completely agree. Um, I just know that, like, you know, hearing from them, they're like, oh, man, well, when it gets really harsh outside and these deer are dying from, you know, not getting enough food, I know they want a supplemental feed a lot. But I feel like in that instance, you kind of have to, you know, ask, well, what's the lesser of the two evils? You know, you're right. going to have maybe other options in order to give them more food, more cover when it snows really bad up there. And, you know, they, I mean, I've heard stories of deer being frozen solid when it drops down to like negative 20 up there. And, you know, they've said, Oh, well, if we could supplemental feed, you know, they'd have more fat and they'd be okay. I don't know if that's true, but no, that's not. If you have high quality habitat, they're going to have fat and they're going to have the cover that they need to survive. Feed us feeding us feeding deer is not what gets them through winter. Us providing high quality habitat and cover is what gets them through winter, no matter where they are. Um, so 
yeah, it's habitat is the answer. If you can't feed or bait uh, in a certain area, provide more forage through habitat management. That's why our organization spends a lot of time talking about habitat management and how to do that. Because dollar for dollar is the best way to feed deer. Mm-hmm. Certainly, yes, supplemental feed works and baiting works to provide food to deer. But it's the most expensive way, pound for pound, to feed deer and provide, you know, and many times, you know, corn is not really nutrition oh, dude, for deer. Terrible so, <laughs> so, you know, bad. and it's got the other negatives. You're feeding nest predators. You're feeding coons yep. and possums and skunks and everything else. You're feeding feral hogs in many areas of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many negatives to it. Um, we, you know, I say, you know, don't buy corn, buy a drip torch and start doing some deer habitat management and you provide more forage, better forage, uh, for far less money, uh, when you can do some habitat management. And the same goes for up North where, you know, deer are adapted to survive those winters. If they have adequate cover and forage and in the winter, it's not forage, it's winter browse. It's, it's Mm -hmm. dormant twigs and branches of these plants that they feed on. That's how they get through winter on their fat supply and that little bit of winter browse, but they got to have that browse that they can reach. And if you're talking about hardwood forest with nothing but dead leaves on the ground, yeah, it's going to be tough for a deer to survive in that. Um, so fix the habitat. Um, you know, don't provide feed when deer are uh, dealing with the cold. Gotcha. Dude, I'm going to be blowing your phone up this off season because I, I want to do <laughs> a lot of habitat changes and I don't know how to do it. <laughs> um, okay. Where's your place? Me. I've already said it before. I have one more question for you. Go ahead. One more. So I have seen for the past five years, every single year, there's there's new stuff that comes out that's, oh, it's higher protein, grow bigger bucks, do this mineral. It's going to be, you're going to have a 200 inch state record. All of that stuff. What is the most important thing? And I, I know that uh, antler growth is related to genetics. It's related to stress on the animal. But when it comes down to supplemental feeding and like these 22, 24, 28% protein feeds that I'm seeing, does that really do anything for them? Or is it more, they're getting their antler growth from more genetics and less stress? Like what's the most important thing, I guess? It's a combination. And you just said it is age, nutrition, and genetics is what produces antlers. Their antlers get bigger as they get older. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a genetic factor too, to, to some deer having above average antlers for their age versus below average antlers for their age. But then nutrition is involved in that as well. The thing to remember is you can only manage age and nutrition. You can't manage genetics. So, you know, strike through that one and don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't manage genetics in wild deer, period. But you can manage age by letting bucks get some age on them, you know, protecting them as yearlings and getting, let, getting them to two, three and on up. Um, and you can increase nutrition. And so, yes, providing supplemental feed that's high protein, yes, that can help. You know, you still need to address the habitat because they're not going to just live off protein feed. They're going to feed and browse on forage in spring and summer at other times of the year um, and throughout the year. Even a deer that's got, you know, a soybean patch is going to stop and browse, you know, native forages on his way into the soybean patch. And at Mm -hmm. other times, that's the way their digestive system works best is on a diversity of foods, just like my, mine does and yours does. You know, you need a diverse diet and deer yep. do too. So provide the forage and, and through habitat management, it's cheaper that way, pound for pound, you know, yes, protein feed works and it will help antlers grow, but you don't need to be just doing that. 
Start with the habitat first and provide adequate habitat. Get the deer density in balance with that. You know, if you're providing protein feed, but your deer density is far exceeding the quality of the habitat that, that the number of deer that habitat can support, mm-hmm. you're already, you know, you, you could simply increase nutrition for deer by shooting does, mm-hmm. not providing more food. So yeah. shoot does, uh, increase the habitat, if you, you know, shoot does if you need to, improve the habitat. And yes, supplemental feed will add inches to antlers if it's provided year round and in a, at an adequate level. You can't go out there during deer season and you know, throw out a couple of bags of protein and expect to see bigger antlers. That's not going to yeah. happen. They don't um, grow once they get harder. <laughs> no, that's got to be a year round thing. But yeah, the research in Texas has shown um, that deer, all other things being equal, the population management, the habitat quality, deer density, et cetera, all things being equal. When supplemental feed is provided, those deer on average will have larger antlers, you know, maybe 10, as much as 10 to 15 inches of extra antler at maturity yeah. for the average mature buck compared to a population, all of the things being equal, that's not supplementally fed. Yeah, those Texas deer, man, Texans are doing it right. I've seen some photos lately of these bucks out there, and I'm just like, dude, I'm in the wrong state. <laughs> but yeah, but Eric, you know how they do that? They don't have the average buck out there doesn't score any higher than they do here in Georgia. Most people are surprised to find that the average five and a half year old buck in South Texas scores about 120 really? to 125. That's right. They do it with math. They crank out the numbers of bucks. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's um, very large acreages, cranking out the bucks, protecting the yearlings, shooting does to balance, you know, the population with the habitat. And when you crank out a lot of adult bucks, you get those, you know, those bucks that come along that are exceptional that score really well. Uh, it's when pressure's high on young bucks that those deer don't come along very often. Man, you've taught me so much tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I still have so I'm, many more questions, but I uh, I'm glad I could long. help. Yeah. yeah and um, I'm going to go get to uh, finish up my evening here because I'm getting up early to get back in the deer stand in the morning. But uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. I love talking about this stuff and uh, happy to do it anytime. Awesome, man. Well, we'll set up another time for you to come out um, or I guess come on. Uh, but tomorrow morning I'm going to be up early. So if you kill something, all right, send me a photo. Okay. Doe, I'll, bear, I don't I, care. <laughs> I will do it. <laughs> all right, man. Well, dude, I really appreciate this. And, um, yeah, we're definitely going to do this again soon for sure. Terrific. Thanks a lot, Eric. I really yes, appreciate you having me and I hope we are able to meet sometime soon. Yeah, for sure, man. We'll make it happen. All right. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Southeastern Bowhunter Podcast. If you don't mind, go on Apple, go on Spotify, wherever you listen to this and give us a five-star review. It really helps out. And, you know, I just want to give all the glory and all the thanks to God. Without him, I wouldn't be able to do any of this. We wouldn't be able to do anything without him. So just needed to throw that out there. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget to give us a review.